Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed he is. Check my ID at the door. Let me in anyway. (laughs) We need to clearly beef up security around here. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is the Wednesday, 29th day of December edition of Lifeline. And Craig Roberts here in your shell-like ear with another edition of the program. We're in this stead, of course, Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. And we aim to do more of the same. Normally, at the start of the program, I tease what's coming up on today's show. Let me take a moment and tease what's coming up instead on tomorrow's show. We've got a very special visit and um, a great opportunity for us to get a bit of an update. As uh, Over the course of the year, we talk about different projects that we get involved with, and many of you have come alongside in supporting fine ministry organizations that we partner with, like the Bay Area Rescue Mission, feeding needy and homeless families and individuals at Thanksgiving and Christmas time, as well as organizations like Cross International. Well, tomorrow, we've got a special visit. Kelly Miller, president and CEO of Cross International, is going to be here. We'll get a direct update from Kelly as to what's going on around the world and the kind of impact that your partnership is making. So we'll look forward to that conversation coming up on the Thursday edition of Lifeline at 5 p.m. Brian Johnston will drop in for an update a little bit later on in tonight's program. But we begin with a story related to news that you've been hearing for probably six months, maybe a year now. Recognize the um, phraseology related to critical race theory? It seemingly, perhaps to the uninitiated, would appear to be something kind of new on the scene. But in fact, this has roots that go back into the 1970s, has been bantied about by some, and seems to be gaining traction. But what exactly is critical race theory? And is it as it purports to be an attempt to try and correct history, right or wrong, bring about parity and balance, or is there something else going on? And I want to begin with the caveat that um, not all brands of critical race theory are alike. Not all the people that promote it have the same motivations. And with that said, let's kind of dig into some definitions here and gain some deeper understanding. And to do so, we turn to a longtime friend of this program, an educator himself, constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, Joe Murray, who joins us. Joe's got a new book out that uh, will be released right after the first of the year called Take Back Education. Very timely indeed. And Joe Murray, as always, hey, great to have you on the show. Craig, I tell you, I need to take, team up with you all the time. That's a great introduction. I, I hope my check clears. So. <laughs> Wait, let's check. Call the bank real friend? quick. <laughs> well, well, Merry Christmas to you and, and, and soon to be Happy New Year. Indeed so, and you as well. And, uh, and great to have you on. I mean, there are probably few people that are better equipped to address this topic, uh, given not only your understanding of the Constitution, of law. I know that you're a history buff going way back, and you're also an educator. So um, spend some time, if you would, and educate all of us 
on what this whole CRT is about. I, I, I kind of run the gambit of emotions from, gee, isn't it time we can be a little bit more truthful about some aspects of our history that aren't all that flowery and rosy, to is this an attempt of, uh, you know, the, the Marxists to try to, you know, slip their nose underneath the tent? What exactly is going on here? And oddly enough, there seem to be as many takes on the definition of critical race theory out there as there are noses. So uh, straighten us out. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. And critical race theory is kind of a uh, um, an offshot of what's called critical theory. And critical theory is something that has been developed since the 1930s. It has Marxist origins. And I don't want to say it's Marxist because I think that word gets thrown around um, quite loftily, just as in the 50s, communists were thrown around. So I don't want to say that some aspects of critical race theory are Marxist, but I think we have to understand where it comes from. Because what critical theory believed is that the world is divided into two camps, the oppressed and the oppressors. And what critical theory taught was that that division was based upon economic status. And that had been the theory from Marx and into the 1930s, and pretty much to today. What critical race theory does is it takes away the economic aspect of critical theory and it replaces it with a racial component. So you still have the world broken down into two categories, the oppressed and the oppressors. It's just that at this point, the oppressed is going to be due to race. So at this point, anyone that is non-white would be viewed into the oppressed category, and anyone that is white is put into the oppressor category. And I I need to be clear, because I think on both sides, and you and I have talked about it, how sometimes the the ideologies and the passions get get in the way of the logic. But nobody that I know of is suggesting that we whitewash history. I think anyone that is an educator or anyone that that admires and respects history understands that we have to have these conversations about what has happened, whether it has happened in the very beginning from the time slaves first hit this, this country, whether it was during the civil rights movement of the 1960s, or whether it is today when we still struggle with issues of race. These conversations have to be made. But what critical race theory does, and it takes it one step further, is it basically divides us completely by race, and it creates a worldview in which you only see by race. And unfortunately, instead of talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly, we stay completely on the ugly, and some folks are now trying to rewrite the history to further indict the, the, the country and, and the, the morals of the country. So what I mean by that, and, and I'll sum it up really quickly, is that critical race theory is a worldview. It is a competing worldview to what we have here, which would some would say American exceptionalism. Some would say the Western classical values that we hold dear. And that is the battle we're having right now. This isn't a micro battle, Craig. This is a macro battle. Because whether it's critical theory, critical race theory, whether we're talking about uh, build, back, build back better or the economics behind that, What we are seeing in this country is a battle as to whether Western values will remain our our foundation or whether we are going to tear down our institutions and rebuild them in another image. And critical race theories is one of those images that people 
will subscribe to if they seek to tear down Western culture. What strikes me about all of this, and I, and I must confess up front that in terms of being a student of this subject matter, uh, it has not been a, a long career for me. Um, I certainly will be spending more and more time taking a look at this as, as all of us grapple to try to understand what exactly it means and what the implications are. But it seems to me on the surface at many layers Almost an oversimplification, and by that I mean when we when we talk about not just overt acts of racism in the past, like America's history in, in slavery, for example, um, if we try to take that in print and then use that lens to understand where we're at today, how we came here, and so forth, I mean that that that's one approach, but it can oftentimes be flawed in that we try to take an immensely complex topic at many levels and oversimplify it in, in such a fashion that, you know, we, we either fail to fully understand the implications both historically and, and most importantly heading forward. I, and I'm a huge student of history, as you know, Joe, yeah. but at the end of the day, if, if history doesn't enlighten our path heading forward, what's the old saying? Those who forget history are condemned to repeat it, but there's also the notion that those who obsess over the past are condemned to stay stuck in it. Am I right? No, that's right. I mean, we have to learn from the past, but we can't let it distract from where we're going, because if we drive looking in the rearview mirror, we crash. Uh, it, it's as simple as that. But we have to remember where we went and where we were, so we can basically get to a better place. And, and this is what we're kind of thinking of, Craig. And what I am seeing here, what I am seeing throughout all of education and throughout the law, when I graduated law school, Craig, uh, I, I was admitted into a group called the Blackstone Fellowship. It was from the Alliance Defending Freedom. And the primary objective of that, that group was saying, we're going to take lawyers, young lawyers, and we are going to train them in good Christian and conservative principles. And we're going to use them to battle in the courts because the idea was the battle for the values of the country was going to be won in the courts. And unfortunately, I think it was a misplace. We were fighting in the wrong battlefield. Because I think the battle, Craig, is in, in the classroom. And I say that not to be an ideologue, because I think ideology in the classroom is a cardinal sin. I don't care if you are conservative or you are liberal. You, are, as an educator, are not to bring your politics in, period. You are to be the grand inquisitor. You challenge all your students by asking them and by probing them and helping them develop their worldview. But not everybody agrees by that, Craig. And that's where this critical theory and this critical race theory comes in. Um, one of the things that I've learned researching this book, there's a fellow by the name of Antonio Gramsci, and he was an Italian communist. And when Mussolini came to power, he had a flee, and he, he fled over to the Soviet Union. And he noticed something there, Craig. He said, he said, the people here are following communism, but they don't believe it. They're following it because they know what happens when they don't. The thing that was preventing them from really embracing communism was Christianity. And Gramsci's the fellow, fellow that said, look, if we're going to have communism and Marxism succeed in the West, you must remove the shield of the West, which is Christianity. And if you look at Craig, at the events that have taken place from the 1940s to present day, what has been systematically removed from all public life? 
Well, Christianity. Not, not only Christianity, but proof positive is to take a look at what appears to be the number one, uh, what should we call it, uh, fear, the number one boogeyman that's fought by every communist regime since uh, 1917, and that is Christianity. Uh, what's the number one enemy of Chinese communism? Christianity. What's the number one enemy of communism and the dynasty of the Kim family in North Korea, Christianity. What was uh, certainly a, a, a form of thinking that that uh, both Lenin and Marx attempted to try and and uh, and not only warn against but denigrate in every way that they could uh, in the Bolshevik Revolution, taking over of parts of Eastern Europe and um, what you know eventually became the Soviet Union, Christianity. So uh, clearly, that is uh, that is a big nemesis that is being addressed, quote unquote. Uh, by much of the indoctrination that's going on in the classroom. And, you know, back to your point, this is not a matter of uh, how to indoctrinate, but rather to educate. And what's becoming increasingly problematic is we're not teaching children how to think so that they can analyze, draw their own conclusions, but rather we're teaching them uh, what to think. So it's not how to think, but it's what to think. And they may just walk away and they just kind of regurgitate what's been shoved down their throat. And, and sadly, it's not always truth-based. You know, the, the old adage that uh, to the victor goes the spoils and the right to record history as they see it. And uh, part of what's happening here is an attempt to try and rewrite some history. Now, are there aspects of American history that we should be ashamed of? Absolutely. Is America alone in this? Absolutely not. And so how do we go about acknowledging the sins of the past and yet not getting so stuck on that that we fail to propel ourselves forward to become better? We should learn from the past and then improve ourselves. And sadly, what appears to be here is in some respects, and we'll get into this more after the break, the notion that America, because of her past, is beyond redemption and needs to be completely reimaged to essentially flush everything that we have been and have stood for for 270-something, 280 years, and, um, and start afresh. Um, that's problematic for a lot of reasons, and we'll get into some of those details. With us today, constitutional lawyer, reporter, best-selling author Joe Murray, a new book out called Take Back Education. It'll be available January the 11th, so you're getting a bit of a sneak preview here today, and more details will be available on Amazon. And meanwhile, let's, uh, let's get you an update on some traffic here. We'll come back to more of our visit with Joe Murray as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I've been being, reading uh, here and there from a book called Critical Race Theory, an Introduction by Richard Delgado. Now, this was written clear back in 2006. And one of the things about the book that strikes me is uh, th this overwhelming sense that America is just beyond redemption. I, I find it curious that we're the only country, by the way, the, that is subject to this kind of harsh criticism and the notion that somehow we just have to, you know, the old adage, throw the baby out with the bathwater and start afresh because we just can't possibly atone for our past sins. And yet, while they are, yes, indeed, sins at many, in many respects, 
But let's not leave out the other important operative word here, past. With me today is best-selling author, reporter, constitutional lawyer, Joe Murray. Got a new book out. It'll be released January the 11th called Taking Back Education, where he takes a look at the the um, beginnings here, the roots of the impact of critical race theory, which, Joe, as you aptly point out, while, while in a more modern context, um, kind of begins to come to light in the United States in the 19, late 1970s. But, but, but overall, the overall basic theory, quote-unquote, of this has roots that go back into the 1930s. And, 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 and do you join me in that sense that one of the hallmarks of this seems to be the notion that America is just, we're just beyond redemption, so let's blow the whole thing up and start from fresh. And and, and if that be the case, I just wonder what that looks like, what's going to be left? You know, that is exactly the design, because if you go back to the 1930s, to the Frankfurt uh, Institute, that was their design. Gramsci, the fellow I was talking about before the break, his quote was, we need to basically deconstruct the West, and we must do that by going through a long march through all the key institutions of the West. So look at the key institutions we have right now, especially with education. So what's being pushed in education today? We have something called standards-based grading, which is you don't get a letter grade anymore, and you're going to be getting a zero, one, two, three, or 4, and you get to take the test as many times as you want until you get the result you want, which would be a 4, uh, you don't have any deadlines, so I can assign you something on September 1st, and so long as you turn it in before the end of the quarter, which we'll say is we'll say October 27th, I have to take it and grade it, because the idea is there should be no consequences. We should be just looking at learning. Look what's going on out in California where they're contemplating doing away with D's and X. This is not by, by chance. This is by design, because if you look at the key values of the West, competition, individuality, uh, you know, ownership in both property, but in your success. These are all key values of the West, but they're also values that that are opposed by more of these socialist and Marxist ideologies. So we're removing these key values of the West in the schools. So when these children are now graduating at 18 and now going into the real world, the values that are foreign to them, Craig, are competition, ownership, individualism. This is what I was saying. When we were fighting in the courts trying to maintain Western values, those Western values are being erased in the classroom. It's almost kind of like that Back to the Future movie when the picture of of, uh, Michael J. Fox is disappearing. Uh, We were were fighting for values that are being erased right under our nose. And this is a problem. And I think many parents didn't know this. You know, everybody says COVID brought education a lot of problems. And I'm going to tell you, Craig, COVID did not bring public education a lot of problems. Did they bring some problems? Absolutely. But what COVID did, Craig, is it exposed public education. Parents now were able to take a look at what's going inside the classroom. Parents now were, being, were taking a more stronger look at what the curriculum was. What were these kids actually being taught? So it wasn't as if these problems just developed because of COVID, they were there hiding in plain sight. I'm going to tell your listeners right now, if they hear something called social justice, if they hear something called anti-racism, if they hear something called social and emotional learning, I'm not saying these things are all bad, but you want to get your ears perked up because that's how you sneak this stuff like critical race theory 
in the in the schoolhouse. Well, and you know what's you, problematic about this, Joe, is the fact that yeah. there is a fundamental denial of 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 a certain reality, a baseline reality. You know, first we begin with the premise: this is not only articulated in the in the um, the founding fathers' documents. But I think certainly supported from a scriptural standpoint. We're all Christians here, so we can use that as a, as I think a, 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 a starting point. Uh, we're all created equally. We're all created in the very image and likeness of God, and we are all created equally. However, we are not all gifted equally. Now, skills skills can be learned. You learn how to drive a car. You learn how to write a letter. There's a lot of things that you can be taught. But talent, well, talent is something that needs to be developed, but it's not necessarily gifted. I mean, I can sit here today, Joe, and I, you know, staff will tell you, Nate will tell you, yeah, every once in a while, out of tune and no doubt getting all the dogs in the neighborhood to barking, I can walk down the hallways here when I'm in a particularly good mood and sing. I do it. I confess. Nate is shaking his head yes. And Nate, as I do so, pretty awful at it. Am I right? Yeah. He's a regular Bing Crosby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor Bing is rolling over in his grave. I, I I like to be a baritone. But I'm going to tell you right now, I am never, ever going to get up on stage and sing. Because my while I might enjoy doing it, and while I think to myself in the shower I sound like Pavarotti or Bing Crosby, I also recognize the fact that that is not a gift that I have. That's not a talent that I have the capacity of developing, and I can spend years in front of a singing coach, and at the end of the day, old Craiger is never going to sound like Bing Crosby. So I acknowledge that. But there's nothing wrong with that because I've got other gifts and abilities where I do succeed and do excel. And I think what's problematic about this is, and again, it goes back to this notion of oversimplification that we think we can set everybody on a par. And when we try to do that and fail at it, we say, well, instead of encouraging students to find where their real talent and gift is and developing that, we say, let's lower the bar. Let's make it equally easy for everyone so that suddenly the person who might excel at, at, at calculus is being given the same level of, of, of treatment and opportunity as somebody like me who, if I have to count to 11, I need to take a shoe off. This is, I think, very problematic. And, and, and this is, at the end of the day, also an insidious way in which if we head down this road, this nation will not continue to develop the next generation of people that will invent the record player, the light bulb, the radio, and all of that, but rather we'll find ourselves sorely in how should I say, incapable of competing on the world stage because we haven't helped people to develop their skills, uh, you know, and where their talents lie, but instead try to basically dumb all of us down. Am I, I mean, am I making sense? No, you're making perfect sense, and that, that is the problem. Instead of raising bars, we're lowering them, and, and that was the point. I mean, again, we're, we're now in, in 2021, soon to be 2022, we're talking about whether or not we should reimagine the country. But, Craig, I'm going to tell you right now, it's already been reimagined. It has already been dismantled, okay? It's just now that we're looking at it. The mere fact that we're talking about it, it's kind of like, you know, when you're married, you go out and buy a car, and you come home and say, hey, honey, should I buy a car? And that she says yes, right? <laughs> you already have it. This is the problem. We've already allowed so many parts of our 
society, these key institutions to be dismantled. Look at movies, okay? Look at how graphically, sexually, and violent that they are. That wouldn't have gone just 70 years ago. Look at music. Look at, turn on any of the, uh, any of the music awards, which I don't anymore because, you know, I still have my Tom Jones. He's alive, but when he goes, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> but it's, it's, not, it's not anything in terms of what traditional Western classical values would be. Look at our magazines. Look at our television shows, right? Lucy and Ricky used to be in separate beds. Now you turn on a TV and you don't know what you're going to see. Some things you don't want to see. So we have been dismantled. This country has been dismantled in plain sight. Now it's basically trying to get the official stamp of approval. And where this is happening the most is education, where we're trying to take away these values, right? Uh, you know, there was a school out in Oregon uh, right before Thanksgiving uh, that had to close down for three weeks because they couldn't deal with the, not COVID, but they could not deal with the students because they became so disruptive. They said the students were so bad, we had to close the school for three, three weeks. And they're sitting here and they're saying, we don't know why this is happening. We don't know why our anti-bullying stuff isn't happening. And I can tell you why. It's because this country has always been a Judeo-Christian country. That does not mean that people are not welcomed here. You know, that's just the opposite. This country was founded on the belief that all peoples of all religions have the right to worship. But it means that we have a core foundation. I'm going to tell you something. The Ten Commandments are going to be a lot more motivational to anti-bullying than some little agreement that you sign and people don't even understand. And this is the problem. We have basically unmoored ourselves from a moral compass and we're kind of out there in the dark, and it's by design. This chaos is designed, and, and that's why in Take Back Education, I give people the history of it. How did we get here? Okay, and is there a chance that we can stop this? And there is, Craig, there is a chance that we can stop it, but we have to know what we're fighting. The other side has been fighting for almost a hundred years, and we're just waking up to it today. So there's a lot of ground that needs to be caught up. Uh, undoubtedly so. And, you know, there, there's a notion of, number one, we have abandoned at many levels our sense of shared values. And, and a point that I have long made every time, I don't say it every time, but I often think it, every time there's an announcement about another tragic school shooting and we click our tongues and shake our heads in disbelief and disgust, and oftentimes people will articulate a sense of frustration. How could this happen? Why is this going on? And I think to myself, well, I wonder if maybe if, if children were taught values like thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt respect and honor thy mother and father, thy, thou shalt not kill, that if some of those basic tenets were taught in schools, oh, like they used to be, when we allowed things like the Ten Commandments to reside in schools. But in the 1960s, we determined, oh, no, this, this, is, this is too much. We can't possibly allow something like that to, to educate, inform, or guide our students because it's, 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 it's sectarianism. And so we, we must avoid and eschew this at all means. I wonder those who in the 1960s, like Madeleine Murray O'Hare and others, who pushed this abandonment of the shared values, of the biblically-based values, in favor of this neutral environment, would not look back on now 60 years of the history of this kind of environment to say, you know, maybe if we did teach our kids to respect their parents and not to kill, 
I wonder if things might be different today. Joe Murray with us today, best-selling author, constitutional lawyer, reporter, former speechwriter for Patrick Buchanan. We're talking about his new book, Take Back Education. It'll be out January 11th on Amazon, so make a note of that. Meanwhile, we're going to take a time out and come back to more of our conversation with Joe Murray as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Two foundational principles that I think we need to wrap our minds around. One, as this, and again, it varies from circumstance to circumstance and depends on who's promoting it, but one of the areas that critical race theory seems to resoundingly ignore is the fact that this is more complicated than what it seems, that no person has a single easily stated or defined unitary identity, so when we try to pigeonhole people, that becomes extremely problematic. And Joe Murray, at the end of the day, what I find problematic about much of this is it seems to have the goal of rather than learning from the past and then moving forward and focusing on making things better, behaving better in the future, that not only does it tend to want to leave us stuck in the past, but it also seems to be doing a better job at tearing us apart as opposed to bringing us together. And that's the point, unfortunately. And that's why when it comes to critical race theory, that is why I think you see a lot of people upset. Like I said, I have never met a history teacher or a person who wants to deny what has happened. I mean, we can't deny it and we shouldn't deny it. And it's something we have to take a hard look at. But the other thing that we can look at, too, Craig, is that no other nation in the world has done more to try to right the wrong. We have worked very hard, sometimes more slowly than we should have. But if we look at what's going on on our southern border, these folks are not trying to to get into a country that is going to, to treat them wrong. They're coming into this country because they know, even though we may have made mistakes, and we will make mistakes, you know, we're human. This is the best place for anyone to succeed. It's the best place to raise a family. It is the best place to to be an entrepreneur. Well, and I've and often he, said in many of the countries that I've traveled to uh, that that frequently nations put up walls to keep people in. We're one of the few countries that works to put a wall up to try to keep people out. People out. And, and that is the point. And, and, and that is why when we talk about history, we have to talk about the good, bad, and the ugly. But we have to do so in a way that brings us together. We have to do so in a way that when you leave a history class, you don't look at someone and judge them solely by their skin color. Because I'm sorry, Martin Luther King had it right. You can judge me by the content of my character, but please do not judge me by my skin color. Just because I'm white does not mean I am an oppressor. And just because you are a person of color does not mean you are oppressed. You can punch your own ticket in this country. Look, we don't get to choose where we start but we do get to choose where we finish. And I think that is something that many people are lacking in recognizing um, in this day and age. Is it also problematic in your opinion, Joe? And I, and I have to apologize because our, our, our time is getting close. And, and yeah. we obviously, when we get into January and the book is released, uh, we're going to have to uh, corral you into spending more time with us because there's this, this, this is the onion. We're, 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 we've not even broken the top layer here tonight. Yeah. But I have to wonder, in, in your viewpoint, are there aspects of the way some 
of this is being taught or promoted that seems to question the motives no matter what. And I, and I raise that question because it seems as if, in, in some respects, if a person acts in an unfair or inattentive manner towards someone else, well, they're a racist. But then, conversely so, if they are fair and they are attentive, well, then they're doing so only out of a sense of guilt, as if to suggest yeah. that, that there's these, you know, and, and I realize we all have to deal with, with basic sin nature, but, you know, not everybody sins in the same fashion. <laughs> not everybody has the same negative opinion of each other. And I think it, it, it seems to be problematic when there's this broad brushstroke to suggest that it is it's it's a negative no motivation no matter what the outcome is, and I, and I find that problematic. Yeah, that's true, because if you look at critical race theory, you have to say, okay, that the country is inherently racist. If you say yes, then that makes you racist. If you say no, it makes you racist because you're denying the racism. There's a no win, and whenever you have a, an academic theory in which you're automatically pigeonholed, where there is no wiggle room, you either accept or you don't, that is not scholarly work. That is that is that is ideology. That is indoctrination. That's a cult, and and that's where we are right now. We have to challenge each other. We have to recognize our past sins. We have to hope for the promise of the future, knowing we will sin again. That's who we are. But if we can't do it together, and if they continue to divide us through these types of critical race theory then this country will not stand. Well, especially when you've got a group of people in the country that believe that there's no racism that exists whatsoever, which is utter nonsense. But conversely, people that believe, well, everything has got to be uh, somehow uh, cloaked in in racism, which is also nonsense. And I, I, you know, all of this seems to cry out for level heads that would be willing to sit down and have a honest dialogue pertaining to many of the terrible things that have happened in the past, but many of the efforts that we've tried to make, albeit perhaps flawed in many turns, but that we've made the effort to try to do better, and we need to continue to make the effort to try to do better. But it just seems to me that being caught in the past and just stuck there is going to prevent us from being able to move forward and, and, and to be able to bring better parity and balance and fairness and equality across the, the, the board and, and to finally get to the point where hopefully, and maybe not all, but hopefully at least a greater majority of Americans will see each other as not only created equally, but, but unique in, in, in God's eyes. And, and that uniqueness is something to be celebrated. And at the end of the day, we're all, we're all not going to be great singers. We're all not going to be attorneys. We're all not going to be fantastic mathematicians. We're going to be who we are, and we have a right to be able to, to grow and develop, and we should be encouraged in that direction, not made to feel guilty or, or somehow as we say, lower the lower the standards so even the worst singer like me can still get up on stage. Nobody wants to hear me in concert, believe me. I'll do a duet with you, Craig. <laughs> we'll do, if not unusual. Well. <laughs> yeah, that, that boy, all the fresh fruit and vegetables come out real quickly on that one. <laughs> right on stage. Hey, Joe, we're out of time. Brother, I appreciate your time, and uh, I appreciate also your candor in dealing with this issue and, and wanting us to come together. And, you know, there, there's, there's so much more work that needs to be done, and I think we need to acknowledge that. But in the process of doing so, 
um, you know, also recognize that while there are things of our past that we should be ashamed of, there's also much that we can take pride in. And I think um, working together to to bring about, again, that, that greater sense of parity and fairness is is an important task that we need to be focusing on that will ultimately work toward bringing us together, not splitting us apart. Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, the new book will be out in January, Take Back Education. And, and Joe, by the way, when, when, when Tom Jones is no longer with us, I promise you right here and now, I will loan you all of my Bing Crosby records, okay? I, I'm going to hold you to it, buddy. <laughs> Listen, happy New Year to you. All right, happy, happy New, New Year, Year to you, too. There is best-selling author and uh, constitutional lawyer reporter Joe Murray and uh, a look at his upcoming book, Taking Back Education. All right, we'll, uh, we'll talk to Joe again after the first of the year. Right now, though, let's talk traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. While a good and growing percentage of Americans are, are um, taking much satisfaction in the direction that we've seen the uh, United States Supreme Court head in in relationship to many of these cases surrounding the question of life, um, and we can, we can be, uh, I think, encouraged by all of that, there's equally a growing number of Californians that are downright embarrassed by the position our own state is taking, essentially acting as a sanctuary, saying, well, if uh, Texas doesn't like abortion, we love it here in California, and uh, we're happy to support it all the way from from zero till uh, nine months. And uh, that's a shame. Then the question is, what do we do? Now, on last night's program, Bob Zadek had a simple answer. Move. Pack up your bags and move. Okay. And sometimes voting with your feet is a very effective way of sending a message. But there's also a number of us that say, now, wait a minute. This is my home, born and raised here, love this state, and why should we just roll over? And at the very least, can't we stand up and make a declaration? My next guest would suggest that's exactly what we should be doing. Brian Johnston is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters. Heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And, uh, and Brian, I think that, uh, you know, this is not a time for us to put tail between the leg when it comes to the attitude of the governor and the state legislature on abortion in California, but rather to stand up and say, hey, wait just a minute. I'm a citizen and a taxpayer in this state, too, and I don't agree. That's right, Greg. And as we know, we talked about this last week when the governor made this invitation for free abortions and transportation, et cetera. But you and I know there's more to this story. Who is benefiting? Is it really women benefiting? We know this about every abortion. Someone did get that woman pregnant, that girl. There are many minors. And they certainly don't want to deal with the implications of that. So when he offers free abortions, who's who's really being benefited? We know I've done a lot of counseling, helped a lot of uh, in front of clinics and also counseling centers. A lot of women feel pressured to have to get unpregnant. So this is a true tragedy. The California pro-life we've talked about in the past, there are the sanctuary cities for the unborn, and we're going to change that because people don't quite understand what we're saying. The safe baby cities and safe baby counties movement. Now, this has been done in other other states, and it's a resolution by your city council. It's a resolution by your county board of supervisors that says, hey, we believe 
in protecting life. At our fire stations, there's a picture of a baby, a newborn, being held in the arms. Bring that baby to our fire stations. That's a civic commitment. And so the safe baby resolution is a resolution. It's not a law. If you try to pass a law to ban abortion in that town, you're going to be put in the court immediately, and they know how to play games with the courts. But a resolution is a commitment by that town, city, hamlet, county, to say, we're going to commit our resources to life. And we've got crisis pregnancy centers. We've got 40 churches that have volunteered in some way, shape, or form. There are numerous people willing to help. And we resolve to affirm life. This safe baby resolution is very, very powerful. It's used in other states. And it really galvanizes the community to see the other side of the coin. This isn't just about women. There's a baby involved, and sometimes other people, and we don't see the full story. Offering free abortions doesn't solve anything for these women. So that's something I'm very excited about. And by the way, real quickly, this coming Monday, Craig, I'll be down at Hollister and uh, speaking there on this and the other issues that are coming up for California. I'll be speaking at Hollister uh, at the California Republican Assembly meeting in the town of Hollister, really good folks, and they're looking at doing these things, too. You know, one of the things that I think we also need to recognize, the the old adage, and this goes way back whenever we see layers of, of suspected corruption going on, the, the saying typically goes, you want to know more? Follow the money. And that's been a dynamic of this component that uh, has not been talked about much, you know. And we'll hear the governor talk about abortion on demand, free abortion, things of that sort. And we think, oh, free. Well, there's no money involved. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, free to whom? And it's never free. And at the end of the day, isn't there a massive amount of money behind this effort to essentially try and, and be the mirror opposite of a state like Texas, and not only money in the effort, but also money because at the end of the day, that's what they make by providing as many abortions as they can? That's right. There's so many Californians, and many are speaking up, they've had enough. And there are quite a few that have been involved. We're involved. I know that you support the crisis pregnancy centers throughout the Bay Area. Very, very important. But we have to recognize now that it's a civic issue. We can't ignore what's going on by the abuse of the laws by people like Governor Newsom handing out free abortions. And there's people that have had enough to say, look, we have better answers. We're going to make them known. And our city, our county, we declare to be a safe baby county. And again, that, that model is already in existence. The civic process at police stations and fire stations they show a picture of a baby at the safe surrender sites. We'll take care of that baby. We won't blame you, and you can come back later. No condemnation. It's a wonderful thing. But now more than ever, we need to stand up as Californians and stand up for life. Absolutely. And and one of the ways in which I want to do that as we wrap up our conversation here with Brian, the, the, the final one, at least live on this show for the year. I bet that he'll be back again, of course, next week. But when you think about year-end giving and supporting organizations that stand for life, that not only help get the word out, but are literally every day on the front line. The California Pro-Life Council at the national level, the National Right to Life Committee, uh, they're true front-line believers, and they're engaged in the battle and have been for decades 
Brian Johnson, I know, certainly has, because I've known him for decades, and I've witnessed all along the way his dedication to uh, those that don't have a voice and the, the heartfelt desire to protect those in every way possible. So as we wrap up the year and you think about uh, your final opportunity to get that donation in uh, at the close of 2021, uh, Keep in mind the the needs that go on behind organizations like California Pro-Life Council. Uh, There's multiple layers from dissemination of information, conversations on this program. Uh, Brian, of course, has a program here on KFAX on Saturdays called Life Matters. That's Saturdays at 11 a.m., by the way, along with all of the mechanism that goes into engaging the legislature and and informing the electorate and all of this in the battle to stand up for those who have no voice. And um, resources are critically important. So again, when you think of your year-end giving, uh, be mindful of the great work being done by the California Pro-Life Council and dear friends like Brian Johnston. Information available, support too online. Go to californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. And we invite you on New Year's Day to tune in to Life Matters Saturday, 11 a.m. and every Saturday at 11 a.m right here on KFAX. Brian, bless you. God love you, brother. Appreciate the work that you do and uh, the partnership. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Information again on the web, giving to at californiaprolife.org. Six o'clock. My goodness, six o'clock. What should we do? Go out and get a bite to eat? Eh, we could do that, but We're going to hang around for a while. We're going to get you an update on some traffic here, take a look at a little headline news, and come back with the second hour of the Wednesday edition of Lifeline that will continue to unfold before your shell-like ears right after we get to this.